Over the last few years of working in crypto, I've accrued more NFTs and altcoins and random crypto assets than I can count across more chains than I can remember. And it's always been a struggle to find a single crypto wallet where I can track everything I own. That is, until I discovered Zerian. Zerian Wallet is for everything you own on-chain. Yes, that includes all of your assets across more than 14 different networks. Zerian is giving people the chance to be true owners by making it simple to explore, collect, mint, test, and contribute to the new internet. Go to zerion.io slash download today to take ownership over your on-chain assets available on iOS, Android, and desktop. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen. And today we're speaking with Julia Lipton, founder and general partner at Awesome People Ventures, about unlocking latent potential in humans, finding product market fit in Web3 communities, and the most important things happening in the global landscape right now. In many ways, it's surprising that it took us until season seven to bring Julia on the podcast because she has actually played a part in Rehash from day zero, as you'll hear us talk about in the beginning of this episode. Julia is an investor, connector of people, and all around one of the kindest and most generous human beings I've encountered in this space. In this episode, we start out by talking about Dow Masters, a project that she crowdfunded through Mirror that ended up winding down last summer and what she learned about the give-get equation through her experiences there. She wrote a really thoughtful Twitter thread about the give-get equation that I've linked in the show notes and would encourage all of you to check out, especially if you're somebody working in or adjacent to the DAO ecosystem. We then get into a discussion around why there's so much latent and unused human talent floating around in the corporate world and what people have been doing about it, such as flocking to freelance and contract work or even to DAOs. Obviously, DAOs aren't perfect, and they are far from it, but Julia shares some strategies she thinks could be implemented for DAOs to be more effective in their operations while still maintaining that same draw that they have for people today. Finally, we talk about what Julia is most focused on in the global landscape with crypto, and Ninty Nick chimes in from the live stream with a question about progressive decentralization. Speaking of the live stream, you are able to tune in live to all of our podcast recordings at pleaser.house. That's P-L-E-A-S-R dot house. And we post all of our recording times in our Telegram group, which you can find at t.me slash rehashweb3. Julia Lipton was nominated by me, Diana Chen, and voted onto the podcast by Fifth World Zach, Meg Lister, Spencer Graham, Triumph, and myself. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Julia. Julia, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on Rehash. Thank you for having me. So for a little bit of background for people, you actually, and I don't know if you even remember this, but before I launched Rehash, I just wrote a post on a Google Doc and I circulated it to some friends and I sent it to my friend Justine, who you're also friends with. And she said, you know, you should really share this with Julia because she is working on Dow Masters and has been going through a lot of the same things that you are probably going to go through. And she'd be a great person to look at this. And I was like, sure, you know, hadn't met you at that point. But I was like, absolutely, like send it to anyone you think would be able to provide useful feedback. And so I think my first interaction with you ever was through Google Doc comments that you left on the original 
post I wrote that eventually became the post that launched Rehash on Mirror Crowdfund. So I super appreciate you for that, first of all. Thank you. I don't know if I've had a chance to really thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Now we're almost two years in a rehash and really like you were there from the start. Like you had a part to play from day one, day zero, really. I mean, it's one of my favorite things to do is help people get things off the ground. So it's just as much fun for me. And I'm so grateful that you included me in that part of your process. Of course. Thank you so much. And shout out to Justine, too, for helping us make that connection. I was just going back and reading through your comments on that doc. And one comment you left was regarding how I was thinking about funding Rehash beyond season one, because I think at that time you were working on Dowmasters and you said that Dowmasters had been struggling with funding beyond season one. And so I was wondering if you could start by just talking a little bit about your experience with funding Dowmasters and why you ultimately decided to shut it down. I, I believe it was last summer. Yeah. So our story is a little bit different because it wasn't so much struggling with funding. I'll, I'll kind of start from the beginning. So my initial intentions when I launched Dow Masters was we were going to review 10 Dow tools. And this is back when there were, were a handful of Dow tools. So we were like, if we just review the main ones, we can review the tools, teach people how to run a Dow, we'll be good to go. I put up a mirror crowdfund. I think it was for 15 ETH to do this one task, which was review 10 tools. Maybe it was 20. I don't remember. But a review a very limited set of tools. And people loved it. And instead of raising 15 ETH, we ended up raising 48 ETH. And so there never was an intention for DAO Masters to become a DAO itself. And it was kind of a YOLO move on my part. I was originally going to crowdfund and then use that money to pay some friends to review the tools. And at the last minute, I was like, well, we have these random tokens for Mirror because at the time, anytime you ran a crowdfund, tokens were just a default part of the Mirror package. But it wasn't I never thought through the tokenomics or thought through using tokens to reward contributors like a DAO. I was originally just planning on reviewing DAO tools, super simple, just get it done. And at the last minute, I had the thought that it would be fun to make it funded by the people, built by the people, reviewed by the people. And so I decided to let anyone who had those tokens become contributors instead of just paying my friends, which was the original plan. And so... DAO Masters, in a strange way, became kind of a YOLO DAO. And after the first season, I wanted to keep to the budget. I think we only spent 10 ETH rewarding contributors, which meant we still had all this ETH left over. Maybe it was all 15. But regardless, we had all of this ETH left over. And there was so much momentum that people wanted to keep going. And so we did for a few seasons thereafter. But there never really was the intention and the structure and the tokenomics behind it to make it a long-standing research DAO. And ultimately, I don't think any of the research DAOs that aren't investment DAOs made it because the give-get equation isn't right. And I wrote a long post about how DAOs have to be really mindful of the give-get equation and why are people contributing and how do you make that work long-term. And there's a reason why businesses pay people salaries and contract proposals because for most things, people need to be rewarded financially. And at the end of the day, our treasury would have run out. And we play an interesting game in crypto where not everything is financial, meaning people are doing things to learn. People are doing things for access. People are doing things for influence. And so you can leverage that as part of the give-get equation. You're giving them access to the community. In return, they're getting experience community. But that also wears off. 
which is why long term to keep people engaged in their jobs, usually they get paid. And if you are going to make something work beyond a financial incentive, you have to be really, really mindful of what that give get equation is and design for it. So in our case, what people were mostly getting when they were contributing to Dell Masters was access to incredible community insights and learning. All the Dow Master guides went on to become founders of their own projects, which is very cool. And they learned in that Dow and that became their launch pad. But at the end of the day, it was launch pad. So once they launch, they're gone. And that was fine from my perspective because we always signed up to just review this initial set of tools and we went way above and beyond their original commitment to the community. But that's ultimately why we shut down. We played around with different revenue models to try and keep it going beyond the initial treasury. And at the end of the day, people really didn't want to do those tasks. People didn't want to do consulting for other DAOs on operations. People didn't want to do partnerships. People didn't want to do anything BD related, which is ultimately the beginning of getting money. And that's okay because it's not what they signed up for. But if you're going to do something that's based on crowdfunding long term, you should be committed to crowdfund long term. And that was never really the intention. We had this one initial crowdfund. We did bring in some additional revenue over time. I think we may have done a second mirror crowdfund. And we actually got a huge Gitcoin grant, which we weren't able to take into our treasury for a variety of legal reasons. But there there were some additional sources. But at the end of the day, the writing was on the wall from my perspective because the give get equation was never right. I think that is a problem that many DAOs struggle with, right, Mm -hmm. is getting that give get equation right. And I think some DAOs get away with it in the early days because what contributors get out of it is those non-financial things that you said, like reputation, experience, learnings, things like that. But over time, as those people gain more experience, gain more of a network, gain more of a reputation, they're able to go and leverage that for paying jobs. And ultimately, everyone is going to choose a paying job over a non-paying job. What were some things that you learned through that process about how to balance that give-get equation? And I also, too, I I would love it if you could send me that article after and then I'll link it in the show notes so people can read that because I'm sure you covered a lot of it in in the article that you already wrote. Yeah, of course. So at the end of the day, I think DAOs and communities are a lot like products. And even more explicitly, they're a lot like marketplaces where people come in to get something. For example, if you're you're an Uber driver, you're coming to drive and in return, you're expecting cash. And if you're an Uber rider, you're coming to take a ride and in return, you're giving them cash. And DAOs and products, I think, are like this too. So you're going to have two people on the side of any community. There's always these interactions. Like DAOs are ultimately just about relationships. And so in every relationship, there is the skip-get equation. And I think it's really, really important for people to be very honest with what are all the personas in their DAO and what is their respective skip-get equation. And in the the Uber example, it's easy, not a DAO, but it's easy. You have riders and you have drivers. In DAOs, depending on your DAO, you have a ton of different people, right? You might have speculators. They're gone the second the token stops going up. You might have contributors who are there either for pay or status or influence, or but really mapping and understanding who all these people are. And ultimately, does it have product market fit, right? Are those reasons in that equation, how long does it balance for? Because if 
that equation only works for like the first three months, you need to make sure you're running a very high churn business, which means you also need a very large top of funnel for your business to constantly replenish your contributors. And ideally, you don't have a really high churn contributor base because that's really, really hard to run. And so the more, the deeper I got into the running of the DAO, the more like this is really like any other product. Like communities are just like products when they have product market fit. I think one problem that I've seen in in a lot of DAOs is that the product market fit changes, mostly because that product is constantly changing. And I think this is true for like actual products too in the Web3 space because it's so new and rapidly evolving that it's always changing. Same thing with DAOs and their communities. And so like when your goal shifts, for, for instance, with DAO Masters, I imagine the initial community that you saw out were people who were interested in maybe more doing like research tasks and things like that. And then over time that shifted to, well, we need help with BD. And a lot of times people that are really interested in doing research aren't people that are interested in doing BD. So that kind of shifted over time. So how do you adjust to to that, to those shifts over time if you're managing a DAO? Well, I mean, I think first you need to be really intentional of like, is your goal to evolve? I think a lot of these should die. Like our original scope the project wasn't set up to be a long-term project. And I think people who start any project need to be really honest about their intention. And so if you need to go through a hard pivot, like attracting a whole another group of people to go do BD and partnerships, you're effectively starting a new type of project. And I think you need to be really honest with yourself about that. And one, is that something you want to do? Do you have the capability to do that? Is there actually product market fit for that next DAO offering? And I think in many cases, the reason why DAOs struggle with this is the answer is actually no. And because there's often a token or a community or PFPs, there's something involved where people really, really want it to make it work. But it's like a founder who really wants to make something work. If there isn't product market fit, there isn't product market fit. And if you're really going to go through a pivot and need a whole different contributor base, that's like having a whole nother set of customers. Yeah, absolutely. Are you positioned to do that? And in most cases, I think the answer is actually no. That's a really good point is I think people are so afraid of shutting things down because they see it as failure. But like you said, not everything is meant to survive forever. And if we're honest with ourselves about that, then shutting down something, winding down something doesn't have to be a failure that can be a success in and of itself. Totally. And I think it's really important to be able to shut things down because if you don't, if you stick with something that isn't working for too long, all you're doing is hamstringing yourself and your community. Like the like most world positive net positive thing for you to do long term is to go on and create something better. Like life is really short. The challenge is in crypto is because you have these tokens, you have this obligation to the community in a way that feels, I, I know that I felt a lot of pressure because we had this token, even though there was never really supposed to be a token. But I felt this extreme amount of pressure to do a good job. Yeah. And at one point, it gave away basically all my tokens because that seemed like the most fair thing to do. Yeah, I think that is a really tricky part about DAOs is the financial aspect of it. When we launched Rehash back in April of 22, which we were still in a bull market at that time. There was a lot of money flowing around. Subsequently, when we thought about pricing our NFTs, our podcast NFTs, we kept going back and thinking, you know, we have to make it quote unquote worth it for our early contributors who contributed to the Mirror Crowdfund. So we can't price anything lower than that original thing because that has to be like the best deal that people can get. And that put a lot of pressure on us too, especially since just months after that, we 
were like full on in a bear market and there wasn't cash flowing around and it was just unreasonable to be selling podcast NFTs, which is also something that people didn't even understand at that time. Like, why would I collect the podcast NFT? So it's like trying to get people to understand why they would collect a, a podcast NFT, get them into this behavior of collecting podcast NFTs or media NFTs in general. And then also on top of that, asking them to pay a premium for it when everybody was struggling during a bear market. <laughs> a lot of those pieces didn't line up. So I totally feel you on that. But going back to something else about DAOs and what draws people to join DAOs is I think a lot of people have this feeling that their talent isn't being fully utilized when they work at a traditional corporation. And that's something that excites people about DAOs is that all of a sudden they're given free reign or at least more free reign than they have in their company job to exercise their talents in other ways and to exercise their creativity in other ways and to utilize skills that they haven't used before or learn new skills that they weren't able to learn in their corporate job. Why do you think that there is such a suppression or underutilization of human potential in our traditional corporate world? Man, this is such a big question. So I'm going to start by answering that question. And then I'd love to talk about kind of both the freelancer economy and then also just marketplaces because I think I think related. But just in terms of like, why do I think there's such an underutilized because the way that we work is evolving so quickly. If you think about it from like the industrial revolution, technological revolution, internet revolution, mobile revolution, like all of these things are happening so, so quickly, but we still default work in the same form factor that was invented in the industrial revolution, like as if we're manufacturing workers, right? This concept of a nine to five pre-COVID going into the office. These are very, very archaic structures. Even the fact that in the U.S. our health insurance is tied to our job, kind of some weird, bizarre form of indentured servitude. These structures are archaic. And so why are people stuck working in these structures? It's just the way that our default economy works, but people have evolved much faster than the default economy. And people are going to continue to evolve much faster than default economy. I was at an event this weekend and someone was an influencer who was like a baby name whisperer where she helped people pick out baby names. And you're like, I could not conceive of that job existing. You know, like, can you imagine being a kid and being like, I'm going to be a baby name whisperer. So like people are evolving and our culture is evolving so much faster than the labor force, which is why people feel stuck in these jobs and they're so underutilized is they are underutilized. They're in this archaic structure in this modern day world. And I think you see there are two examples were kind of the freelancer economy and marketplace economy that I wanted to talk about. On the freelancer economy, you're starting to see people be like, whoa, I don't need to work in this structure. I can just do what I do. It doesn't take that much time. The amount of people who are at nine to five jobs and working like a few hours a day, it's probably most of them. And so people are going out saying, whoa, I can charge half as much per client as my full-time job one fourth as much per client, take on four clients for the same amount of time and make two times the money. Why not? Or maybe they're saying, oh, wow, I could take on one client, make half as much money, work one fourth the time and go live in Bali. Why not? People are starting to evolve outside of the structures. And from a company's perspective, if you're hiring freelancers and consultants, your model also supports it. Because you can pay these people half as much and you're effectively getting the same thing done and you don't have to pay full-time benefits, healthcare, all that stuff. 
So I think that's one thing to know. And then I think there's these marketplace businesses, gig economy businesses that are quite literally creating new jobs. Like taxi drivers were medallion capped. Now you have all these people who are Uber drivers, Airbnb, all these people who are now like small business owners, right? And so you have these internet businesses that are quite literally breaking the structure invented for manufacturing companies in terms of getting paid. And I think that's really, really cool, but it's happening really fast and way faster than the traditional nine to five corporate structures. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think when we look at DAOs, though, that model is a little different from the freelance model that you just described. And it seems like there's almost more missing pieces in that model. I don't know if you've been able to piece it together to describe what that model looks like. Yeah. So so one of the things that I think is so interesting about DAOs is I thought for a while it could be basically V2 of both of these concepts, freelancing on steroids and any sort of like people marketplace gig economy based business on market on steroids. And, And I still think there's some truth to that. But when we started DAOs, we threw a lot of best practices, a lot of like, the baby out with the bathwater. And, and I don't think the solution is create like DAO resumes or like DAO entrance exams like a GMAT or something like that. There, there's probably something in the middle, but there are a lot of good things about the way work works today. And in DAOs, we basically threw out everything, right? We threw out everything from like best practices in hiring, best practices on onboarding, best practices on organizational design, best practice on everything. And so when you're like, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of stuff missing. It's like, well, yeah, of course, there's a lot of stuff missing. We literally threw out everything that we know about running high performance teams. And then we're like, why didn't this work? And I don't think it has to be that way. I think the first generation of DAOs had to be that way because people wanted to really, really start over. And I think we learned some hard lessons what works moving forward. Yeah. So what can DAOs do differently moving forward? Is it really just a matter of bringing back some of those best practices from traditional corporations about organizing people, about hiring, about those things? Or how do we bring back and implement some of those best practices? Because they are called best practices for a reason. We shouldn't throw all of them out. How do we implement some of these while still maintaining the good things about DAOs, like the fact that they do allow people to tap into their full human potential more so than they could in the corporate world and things like that. I, I think the first thing actually starts before that, which is the product market fit question, where most things fail because there was never any product market fit for that DAO service. The DAOs that work are mostly financial DAOs, protocol DAOs, DeFi DAOs. And that's because there's product market fit there. And the lift is much lower. Contributing liquidity or capital is a much, much lower lift than trying to solve some of these human coordination challenges. So it's twofold. One is these best practices, but one is the the premise. Like, what's the product that the DAO is offering? And I think most of these DAOs failed because ultimately the product that the DAO is offering does not have long-term product market fit. And so it doesn't matter how well run your Discord is or your Telegram is or your onboarding process, if at the end of the day, the product that you're contributing doesn't have high engagement and retention. So I think that's first things first, like starting from first principles. And I think once we get more comfortable with things expiring, that will increase the rate of success. But if you think about any business, what are restaurant success rates, like 3% or something really, really small? Startups are lower, right? Like most things fail across any category. And so 
putting in the thought up front and the effort to say like, okay, what's most likely to succeed and what structure do we need? I think is actually the most important question. And then after that, yeah, bringing back some of these best practices and figuring out what's a way that feels organic and native to that organization. Do you think when you say DeFi protocols are some of the only ones that have product market fit, is that product market fit just that they, the money they put in and then the money they get out? So are we really like going back to just financial rewards and financial gain? That's what we've seen work so far. And I suspect the DAOs that work long term, they're also going to have to figure out how to make that equation work, right? Like companies only work because people get paid. Like if we tried to have a healthcare system where people don't get paid, I mean, you actually have this in our healthcare system where doctors are being asked to do more work for less pay and our outcomes are getting worse. And so I do think it's really important people think about these economic, like when I say product market fit, I guess I mean more than product market fit. I mean the overall, if you would have to do like a pitch deck, screw the venture word, if you would have to go to like a bank and get a loan, you have to have a business plan, you have to have a model. And I think anything that you expect to exist long-term needs a decent amount of forethought. And if it's not supposed to exist long-term, then like, that's also great. Most, the best things are ephemeral and just being honest about that. And it's, it's really easy to get people to do things that are short-term because you can use motivators other than money. If your project's a six-month sprint, one-month sprint, people are really interested in that because they're going to learn, they're going to grow, they're going to get access, they're going to have influence. Then you don't have to make the money part work. But as soon as you need to make the money part work, you got to make the money part work. Is there an example of a long-term project that's not just, you know, meant to be a six-month sprint to accomplish a certain task? Is there an example you can think of that isn't like a DeFi protocol where it involves people having to do things? I mean, there's tons, right? Like consensus is probably in that bucket where they're spinning out different projects and some of them work, some of them don't, but they're core contributors and build the ecosystem. But at the end of the day, some percentage of their projects have to work. I speak from experience when I say that launching a DAO is not easy work. I've spent countless hours trying to figure out how to manage a community, get people to vote on proposals, and figure out how to set everything up on chain. Tally does all of that hard work for me while providing a full suite of tools for my community to create drafts, collaborate on proposals, incentivize voting, and most importantly, stay safe and secure on-chain while doing it all. Tally is the home of DAO governance. Launch your DAO with Tally at tally.xyz. I want to also ask about Awesome People Talent and Awesome People Ventures, which is your main project. And so Awesome People Ventures is a VC fund. And then Awesome People Talent is this sort of talent board. Is it just a job board or do you actually match people? No, and actually, I don't even know that we still have the job board. If we do, I should take it down. It probably still exists on Palette somewhere. So Awesome People Talent started before the fund. Awesome People Talent started in like 2018-ish. And it was designed to solve this latent talent issue. So I became obsessed with the idea of freelancing and consulting and people owning their own cash flow and was convinced that people, anyone who wanted to quit their job that was very, very talented at their jobs, this is more in the web two days, that they could quit their job and make the same salary freelancing or consulting. And I quickly ran into this problem where people didn't have a good enough network to get clients. So I tried to convince my friends who were miserable at their job to quit 
travel around the world, do this. And they couldn't do it because they couldn't get that time. So I started this newsletter. I was like, well, I know a bunch of smart founders that would probably hire you. Why don't I just email my friends? It started as a BCC newsletter. And so that's how it started. And now there's like 4,500 people on this newsletter that are just everyone that I've met with over the past few years. Every once in a while, someone finds it and joins, but not often. They're mostly all people that I've met. And so that's how it got started was me profiling my friends every week. I haven't worked on it tons in the last couple of years. And I actually think we're probably getting close to winding it down or going back to the old model where it's just my friends as opposed to finding new people every week and getting referrals and vetting them and doing reference checks just because it is so far outside of my core business that I haven't been able to prioritize it. But that's how that got started. And then over time, there's been other ancillary products that we've launched. We had a talent agency for a bit that actually had a real business model, palette board. We've tried other things with it, but the core and my love for it has always been on helping promote awesome people in my network and helping them get paid. So I actually started it more from trying to serve the talent than the customer. The, the talent was a way for me to help my friends get paid. And it just so happened that I had these venture-backed companies that wanted to hire these people, which worked really nicely when I then started the fund. Because now when I think about our core customer, it's obviously founders. Two questions with that. Were you able to help your friends, at least some of them, actually quit their corporate jobs? And it doesn't. Yeah. Lots of people. That's awesome. And then were you monetizing that? Like, were you charging companies when you match them with people? Or was it really just like a pro bono type? Yeah, we had a couple of phases of different business models. At one point, we were actually charging the talent like an agency, but taking a smaller fee. So we would take 10%. I never felt comfortable charging the companies because of the fund. I felt really inappropriate to be charging our founders. And some venture funds do that. In retrospect, that was probably like more my shit and like my hang up than anything. It just felt like it had always been like this gift to our community. And I felt really uncomfortable doing anything other than that. I think we had a couple months where we tested charging the companies and doing recruiting fees. I think we've actually done that test a couple times. It works. But then at some point I wake up and I'm like, I don't want to be running a staffing agency or recruiting. Like this is just not my business. And I'm a big like give more than you get person. And so I really like doing these things and putting these things out into the world that are just helpful. And the second I start to monetize things that aren't our core business, where our core business is a venture fund, I'm just like, this isn't my life's work right now. Yeah, absolutely. Do you see Web3 changing this landscape for freelancers? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's my hope, right? Some of the talent guilds did really well. Like Raid Guild did really well. Oh my God, what's the amazing design? Vector. Yeah. Right. Like there are a couple of these talent DAOs in Web3 that worked well. And if I'm honest, there's tons of incredible talent networks in Web2. And in and, and some talent networks that don't even look like talent networks, right? There's this group, they mainly use EAs based out of the Philippines called Athena. And they're giving these EAs 2x plus what they would usually make if they were being a VA on their own. And they're giving them work. And it's it's meaningfully changing these VAs' lives. It'll be interesting to see how many of these networks are user-owned networks, which is the difference to me, is like who has the ownership. But at the end of the day, I think we'll continue to see a lot more decentralized labor forces, like fractional decentralized labor forces. Yeah, talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in the global landscape outside of the US. I mean, you see that everywhere, right? Even in the early days of like fiber. And that was the arbitrage. Or like even before that, in the 90s, you had all these consultants doing these 
BPO accounts, these business process outsourcing accounts. And they employ management consulting companies, employ tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. I don't know exactly what the number is of these business process outsourcing consultants in these more affordable countries. And they're doing everything from labeling to, I mean, now mechanical turk things for LLM. Like there's all sorts of labor arbitrage that's been going on since the beginning of globalization. And so what we're seeing in my mind is just continuing to make that better, faster, cheaper. Where do you see global currencies developing? This is one of the things that's so interesting to me because you now have people working online and spending online. And so their lives in many cases are not confined to their geographies. I have a VA that I've been working with for a few years in the Philippines. She makes way more money than anyone in her peers. She's traveling. I mean, her life, she's physically in the Philippines, but she earns in dollars. She has a lot of flexibility. And when you look at the crypto marketplaces and places like LATAM, 50 plus percent of all the transaction value volume is stablecoin. And so you have people who are getting paid in their native currency and quickly swapping it into stablecoins or getting paid in stablecoins at the outset. And quite literally, their economic mobility is not in any way tied to their local currency or culture, which is actually insane and a huge, huge opportunity to help billions of people get access to stronger currency and a better financial system to not be geographically constrained in your earning potential. Absolutely amazing. We've invested in this company called Eldorado, which is a decentralized stablecoin marketplace. And the founder has helped pre this company, hundreds of people in this local community starting, I think, in 2013, keep their savings in stablecoin and Bitcoin. And those people's lives from Venezuela, Argentina, places are totally different than their peers. And I think this is a huge unlock both from a, a wealth creation standpoint and the ability to easily earn online and compete globally. Like there are companies that are paying people the same amount independent of where they live. Yeah. And it's not just getting paid in a more stable currency, but it's also being able to keep your money, right? Like I totally. used to work with a video editor from Argentina. And when I was chatting with her every week, she'd be like, this just happened and everybody's savings are now gone, like worth pretty much nothing, which is such a scary thought. Like a lot of times when I'm talking in the space, I'm talking to creators and about the creator economy and stuff. And I like imagine having your entire business on Instagram, for example, having built this huge following on Instagram, that is your way of making money. And then overnight you get deplatformed, you lose access to everything that you built, you lose access to your livelihood. I mean, this is happening to people in various countries around the world where they're losing all of their savings that they've worked so hard for, for their whole lives, just overnight, because whatever is happening politically. and Totally. I mean, there's a deep platforming. There's also just a very like basic, these banks go under, these banks tell you that you don't have access to your money and you don't have access to your money. Yeah. It's totally insane. You go to withdraw, you think you have 25 grand in the bank and they're like, sorry, you can withdraw 250. I, yeah. And I think that's just hard for people in the States to wrap their minds around because we have so much trust in banks and in the traditional yeah. system. But I think in certain countries where you've been rugged by the banks, people in those places can much more easily see the value of crypto. Yeah. Hands down. I think the new president of Argentina called banks the greatest scam. Because yeah. if you live in a place like that, it's true. I mean, crypto is a much stronger use case anywhere other than the US because we 
have a decent financial system. And so it's not as obvious to us. I mean, you have these countries where people are choosing to keep more money. If, if you're crypto native, more money in stables or Bitcoin, anything other than their native currency, which is kind of unfathomable to us in the U.S. because ever, all of our stuff is denominated in USD. I think it's almost scarier, the traditional banking system, because you can get rugged just as easily by banks as you can by scams that people fall prey to with crypto all the time, except with crypto, like people already have this perception that it's ridden with scams and it's in the back of my head. I'm always thinking like, let me be careful with what I'm doing because there's scammers everywhere. Whereas with the traditional banking system, at least in the US, like we have so much trust in that system, that age old system that when we do get rugged, it's like we're not expecting it as much as we are in crypto. Totally. We're not looking when at the SVP thing happened and yeah. people realized that they only get back up to their FDIC before the government made everyone whole, like that was really scary. And there are countries where that is commonplace yeah. or having 200% inflation is commonplace. And this is all stuff we take for granted in the US. Yeah. So with Awesome People Ventures, you guys, I think mostly invest in projects related to the future of work. Is that accurate? This fund actually only does crypto. Only does crypto. Okay. So what do you have your eye on for the remainder of this year? What should we be paying attention to? I'm very interested in stable coins and international payment layers. I really like that as a use case because it meaningfully helps real people. And then obviously, like everyone else, we're looking at it, a lot of infrastructure protocol deals as well, because ultimately we have a fiduciary responsibility to make money for our OPs. Are you looking at consumer apps any more this year than you were in maybe previous years? I always keep my eye on it. It hasn't fluctuated up or down. I'm really interested in real world use cases. And so I always keep my eye on it and we'll play with things. Consumer is really hard. In in terms of making money? Making money, long-term retention, yeah. building something that people want, having something that's beyond a fad. It's just a really, really hard category. I'm optimistic that this cycle will actually be quite good for crypto consumer and crypto social and all of that. But it's historically been a really hard Yeah, category. that's why I asked that is I feel like I've had more conversations recently within the last few months where people like VCs especially are saying that they're shifting their focus from infra to consumer apps. And I mean, my unprofessional opinion is that I think with the next bull cycle, we have to achieve some level of mainstream adoption of crypto. Otherwise, like it's not going to work. And the only way to achieve mainstream adoption of crypto is via consumer apps. Because that's like what's most understandable to the mainstream. I mean, I think that is a very common narrative. And when everyone is holding the same narrative, if you're a VC, you're like, okay, well, if anything, this is at least a narrative trade. And so I think that's a really easy argument to make. I also think there's an argument to be made for it's a huge industry as is. And I think it'll continue to grow. Sure. So if we don't create the next Facebook in the next cycle, I don't think that it's the end of the world. Crypto is yeah. good. Yeah. I'm optimistic that it will happen because now we have so much infrastructure and tools where we can build way better human consumer experiences than we've ever been able to build. Like Farcaster is one of the only apps that truly feels just like a world-class app. Yeah. And that was impossible two cycles ago. Exactly. Yeah, we've definitely made a lot of progress. Even just like signing things with a, a wallet has progressed so much over time and still has room to progress even more. But we've come a long way for sure. 
One last question for you. This is from Ninty Nick, who's tuning into the recording live on Pleaser House. He wants to know what your thoughts are on progressive decentralization these days. I mean, I still think it's a good idea. What do you think is the best way to do it? Because I think we've seen a lot of projects attempt it with the last cycle when DAOs were really big and everybody was talking about progressively decentralizing. We saw a lot of people attempt it and fail. You you still think it can... How, how do you think it can still work? I think things need to be very clearly scoped on what is decentralized and, and in what order do you decentralize things. So one of the things that was really interesting to me watching, we have a company or portfolio that started as a DAO. It's now almost entirely out of Web3, which is a bummer, but called Archive DAO, which was a real world art collecting DAO. So they weren't collecting NFTs, they're collecting real world art and cultural artifacts. And one of the things that was so interesting to me about watching them run that in the early days is what they had people do. So they're decentralized contributors. The scope was very limited. They had curators who were legit gallerists and and they were voting on art and they they weren't trying to do anything else, right? So when you have a DAO and all of a sudden you're like, now we're going to decentralize payroll and now we're going to decentralize governance and we don't know how to decentralize governance. So we're going to have all these delegates and like hope the delegates still care in two years. Like what was so interesting about watching these guys was just how narrow the scope was and again kind of like that product market fit of contributors like who people were what they were being asked to do and that they were able to deliver on that and i think that framework works for everything so like when you think about progressive decentralization just getting a bunch of delegates and random people to contribute in governance when you just like think about it from first principles perspective you're like this doesn't really make sense like how much of these people contributed how invested are in there why are they the right people to make their these decisions like there are bits that should probably be decentralized, decentralized and other bits that should be centralized. And I think that balance is really important. Yeah, I think maybe where a lot of projects went wrong with the last cycle is they saw progressive decentralization as like the whole goal. And they wanted to decentralize yeah. everything without asking, again, like going to your point about, you know, identifying product market fit first, like ident- first asking themselves, why do we want to decentralize? All of these functions. Well, so here's here's like the dirty secret that people don't talk about. The reason why most people want to decentralize is because of regulatory constraints. And so they're kind of like, we don't have a choice. We have to decentralize. And so when that's true, that's adding like an additional market force that makes it challenging, right? Because you're like, well, users might not want this. Internally, we might not even want it, but we have to. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, Julia, thank you so much for taking the time. We do have one final question that I ask every guest on the podcast. This is really just a for fun question. I know you don't want to talk about price predictions or anything like that, but we it's just for fun. Everybody do your own research. Don't listen to anything that we say here as financial advice. But I ask every guest on this season a two-part question. The first is, will Ethereum and or Bitcoin reach an all-time high in 2024? And the second part, yes. yes. Okay. And then the second part is, what will that all-time high price be? We have a policy against making price predictions, but I do think they'll both make. Okay. I think they'll both. I'll take it. That's super bullish. Yeah. I'll take it. I'm really excited. I hope you're right. Last thing, Julia, before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you personally, and then also where people can go to check out Awesome People Ventures and anything else that you would like to plug. The best for growth is just follow me on Twitter at, at Julia Lipton. Super easy. We'll include it in the show notes. Thank you again so much, Julia, for your time today. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Rehash. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Diana Chen, and sponsored by Zerian, Tally, and Quest. 
Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. Collectors will also be able to tune into our recordings live at pleaser.house and hear our episodes early and unedited. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at rehashweb3 or on Warpcast or Lens at Rehash. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 